Adair, while you're getting wine, you may never hear this part of my recording, but... Sorry. I think you're swell. Oh, you weren't supposed to hear that. I I was leaving you a message on my side of the recording. (laughs) I do that. Uh, I do do that every time, and, and I don't think you've heard one of them yet. I've heard, I've heard none. Oh, good. If you sneaky minx. Um, no, I was, I want to, I was wondering, I feel like we should bet on the likelihood of me spilling wine on my bed today. Uh, today? Or while we're recording specifically? Well, like, while we're recording. Mmm, 60% chance, because of the dogs, I'd put it maybe at 70. Yeah. But... You're underestimating how much I want to drink right now. Probably. <laughs> and now that you've moved away from your bed, I'd say the chances of you spilling wine on the bed are, I'm, I'm going to say, almost zero. I, I mean, with me, you never know, but I think my chances are pretty are pretty good right now. I think... You, I could envision some sort of pug-powered Rube Goldberg machine where something falls over and knocks the wine down and then the glass is caught on the back, folds and into the collar of one of your dogs and then they get really scared and they run into your room and then they dump the wine. But that's the only scenario in which I see that happening. Whatever you just said cut out completely, but it sounded elaborate wherever you were going. Damn, it was. It was so elaborate. There was a serious moment of panic for me when you skipped four. (laughs) I don't want to think about it. Uh, That's one of life's more manageable panic attacks. (laughs) Yes, that is true. Uh, Speaking of panic attacks, how was your Thanksgiving? Um, very nice. Very nice. Um, I made sweet potatoes, um, and a baked brie and cranberry and orange peel infused vodka with a cardamom and clove simple syrup, some triple sec and tonic water. And it was the bomb diggity. (laughs) My God, that sounds like the most nouveau riche Thanksgiving I've ever heard. Well, it was, uh, it was something. Yeah. Drunk Christmas well, you are something. singing and lots of, lots of, lots of good food. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds like Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Friendsgiving. Friendsgiving. Oh, yeah. That's something to be thankful for. Mm-hmm. Right there. Ooh. Um, I How was your Thanksgiving? already. Um. Sorry, that was mean. As I often tell my wife and friends, it's okay. I don't like me either. <laughs> um, my Thanksgiving was fine. Uh, there was there was a lot of drinking involved, and we definitely recorded a podcast after dinner, and so that was good. Uh, I don't know. I'm still sort of processing the holiday weekend in general. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it was nice, and I would loved having some of my friends there as well as some of my family, and, uh, yeah, I'm ready to get busy again, which is not something I necessarily would, thought I would say, but I totally am. 
I find it's interesting doing holidays as an adult and organizing things yourself and getting people together and things that you previously associated as exclusively family events now opening up to friends and just the different dynamic that that brings and how it's I don't know like I'm not close with my cousins or my extended family like really at all Mm -hmm. um and I know a lot of people that have a really close relationship with cousins and extended family and I've always been jealous of that yeah but I think the trade-off is I have a lot of really close really dear friends who feel like family that I've picked we've talked yeah about that isn't it nice family issues isn't it nice mm-hmm. when you feel like friends are your extended family because then also you don't feel bad yelling at them right and for oh. most of them you come to each other as adults or at least teenagers or some with the exception of austin most of the friends still in my life you know i maybe met when i was 16 18 20 like right in that range awkward Dan. Or people that i've met since i moved here yeah Awkward, Dan. But not like all the baggage of childhood or just the presumed familiarity of somebody who's known you since you were a baby and still calls you Danny. (laughs) You know? God, I think you'd punch me if I called you Danny. I hope nobody still calls you Danny. Oh, no, not after that one time. Mm -hmm. You you did right by me, Dan. You did right. (laughs) I um, there's only one Thanksgiving tradition that I I really missed, um, mm-hmm. and that's this. <laughs> my dad likes to read the original proclamation of Thanksgiving that Abraham Lincoln wrote, um, declaring it a holiday before the meal. It's really sweet. Aww. So I missed hearing my dad my dad read that. Yeah, we do a uh, Robbie Burns poem. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it's nice. Um, it's one of those traditions. I didn't realize it was a poem for the longest time. I thought it was a prayer, which I mean, says something that like a yeah. poem can have like prayer like mentality. Like you don't have to be religious to believe in what they're saying. Sorry. Wow, I got deep there. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, there's something. Poems and prayers both, one has overt and the other has um, more subtle ritual. Yeah. But there's definitely something about poems and especially reading them aloud to an audience that just, I don't know. It 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 can feel like a community. You know? It's a community activity then. I'm I'm having a vicious cycle of self-hatred. It's, it's swell. I gotta tell you, it's swell. Uh, But I've seen a lot of movies this weekend. Some which I've seen before. But I saw Arrival last night, and then I saw Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them with my family today. I have a lot of thoughts and feelings on Fantastic Beasts that I'd love to get into. But first, real quick, did you, uh, what did you think of Arrival? Um,. I'm still kind of processing Arrival. And it was interesting because the two people I went with were super effusive about how much they liked it and how different it is. And I, I like, respect all of that. And it was. It was really, really well done. But there, I don't know, something about it just didn't, it didn't fit 
to me and maybe I was just not in the right frame of mind for it. But I liked it, but I, I feel weird about it still. I'm still kind of processing it. And also I was sort of like, that's not Montana. They're saying they're in Montana, but I, that's not Montana. Cause the, oh, I didn't the realize po- there was a scene in Montana. There's a bunch of scenes in Montana. Because um, the pod, the pod that lands in the U.S. lands in Montana. What? Yeah, right. Go to Montana. We had dinosaurs once, and also were where that po- the he- hectopod thing landed. The ship landed. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It's great. Um, no, I I liked it. It was interesting. There were a lot of thoughts about it that just were really interesting ideas to dwell on and I definitely have been thinking about them a lot today but also I was just like okay hi Amy Adams you don't age apparently (laughs) well I'm pretty sure that Amy Adams entered into a blood pact with um, George Clooney Walt Disney's head (laughs) I was thinking George George Clooney I figured they just got together and did some sort of weird ritual they sacrifice someone who I guess has always no, looked old, she... like Steve Martin. Oh, I... oh, yeah. Steve Martin has always looked old, but still attractive, old but attractive. So he's doing okay. So maybe they like sacrificed him, and so he's really now just a walking skin suit filled with frogs. He's a golem. <laughs> I just made Steve. Shout Martin. out to Dizzy Channel. <laughs> I just made. Steve Martin into a golem with my imagination. Oh, Jesus. And that, kids, is the power of imagination. (laughs) You can make anything into anything. I was really positive you were going to say, and that is the power of legalized marijuana. Well... (laughs) (laughs) I won't won't dispute that, but... um... Yeah, there's 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 some sort of power emanating through that statement. <laughs> yeah, love it. Anywho, so yeah, that's my feelings on Arrival. Have you seen it? I have not. That's why I asked. I, I saw a review that was pretty scathing about um, the notion of the twist on the alien language and hmm. what understanding that alien language does to people. He said, tactfully trying to avoid spoilers, mm-hmm. um, and how the 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 logic of that doesn't hold up to um, examination. But that's all. That's the only. Um, that's all I've really examined about it. Okay. Yeah. That's. I mean, yeah. I'm not a hundred percent sure about it, but it was. It was a. Did movie. you like? Did you like Interstellar? He says, like, I saw Interstellar. No. I, I didn't ever see it. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was, oh, interesting. Yeah, it was one okay. of those movies that I, after I kind of heard the rough premise of it, I was like, pass. The, the least believable aspect that Matthew McConaughey could be a man of science. Well, the whole movie was sponsored by Lincoln, so I think that had something to do with it. It was a Lincoln ship that they were in. I'm trying to think of some funny the new twist. New Lincoln Interstellar. <laughs> well, I'm trying to think of some hilarious Lincoln lawyer like joke. 
Sometimes you want to just drive through the stars and just think about space and <laughs> saving humanity and whether a drawl is really the most effective way to communicate deep-rooting thoughts or if it's actually just some sort of deluded and contrived attempt at an artistic statement like you're a really good actor but really it's kind of just like putting on a clown nose or a lady's dress and saying that you're edgy. Lincoln. And then it's space travel. And then it just pans over to the, the other people in the ship and saying, he just turned off the gravity, guys. <laughs> Poor Anne Hathaway. Scratching at the walls like a cat. <laughs> she knows no other way. Because <laughs> she's feisty. Plot is people. Human emotions and desires founded on the realities of life, working at cross-purposes, getting hotter and fiercer as they strike against each other until finally there's an explosion. That's plot. Lee Brackett. Did you sense that I wanted you to choose that one? Uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It was just so much longer than the other ones. Well, and given the uh, circumstances and the things that we said we wanted to talk about, that one made uh, Oh, yeah, it made so much more sense. Thematically. It was very thematic. It's a little bit thematic some days. There's a whole bottle of wine sitting next to me, and I think it wants me to drink it, but I don't know if I can. Does it have a tag on it that says, drink me? No. It has a tag on it that says, castle feeder. Glenner Pinot Nero. <laughs> oh, there, I kid That's you not. That's probably a better tag. <laughs> yeah, I kid you. Be- I kid you not. Though the word on the bottom is Blauburgunder. <laughs> They're these aren't actual words. They're just making shit up now. Is that is that some obscure German curse word? Blauburgunder. <laughs> I think it's what I say when I accidentally, uh, I'm vacuuming and I accidentally unplug my vacuum with the, due to the <laughs> vigorousness in which I vacuum my home. I will be editing out the noise I just made. It was awful. <laughs> well, we all make awful noises. If we edited out every awful noise we made, this podcast would be about five minutes long. I know. I was thinking about that. Good for us. Good for us for being flawed and just, you know, riding that wave, just accepting that we are, that we are broken. Speaking of broken, (laughs) you said effortlessly transitioning into the uh, artistic use of pain. Oh, we're not going to talk about Fantastic Beasts and where to find them? I was thinking, like, broken glass and my... Broken locks on cases. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, why why can't he magic that case better? I don't understand. Floyd doesn't understand either. All right, you're getting to a point. Let's talk. Um, (laughs) real quick, there's one there's one plot hole in that movie that bugs the shit out of me. Let's Uh, talk about it. This 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 is a very minor spoiler. But there's a moment in the uh, Magical Congress of America, or um, what do they call it? Marcusa? Yeah, something like that. 
I was. Uh, it's Macusa. It took yeah. me. It took me so long to figure out that that was also what they were like. That's what they were saying. I'm like Macusa. What the fuck? I know. I was like, is that the president's name? No, I don't think that's her name. I thought I was it like, was who's Macusa. I thought it was like a parlay kind of word, like where it's just like you say right? something. It's like how Voldemort is a taboo word, like something like that. Oh, right. here's me getting nerdy. Continue. So <laughs> in Macusa, when, uh, when they're when they're busting out, um, and uh, they have to get into, um, shit, Colin Farrell's character's office, and Grace, the spells yeah. don't work, but yeah. then the nomad just kicks the door down. He's real strong. <laughs> I, I, right? I was like, uh-uh, nope. <laughs> Although it was kind of, I wish, if they were going to go with that, if that was going to be her... Um, you know, Deus Ex Machina or just her whatever cheat. I wish that there'd been a comment of like, oh, I never would have thought to do that. <laughs> or something. Yeah, I really want them to play that up. I also desperately want to know what the directorial notes for that mating dance in the Central Park Zoo was. Like, I I don't often think like, man, I really want to be a director, but I want to be the... I, I want to be David Yates in that mi- in that like minute that he's explaining to Eddie Redmayne exactly what he wants him to do, and then have Eddie Redmayne do that. I want that power so badly. Well, apparently they shot that scene fairly late in the process, and Eddie showed him several different dances, and the note was always something, but it was now make it sexier, now <laughs> now now make it more guttural, now now make it more. Um, now make it more like a rhino. Now, now make it more like a cow. Like uh, all sorts of crazy stuff like that. Your confidence in your bullshit is just, is just so disarming. <laughs> no, somebody told me that they heard that when Eddie Redmayne gave an interview. I have that as like a fourth-hand source, straight from the horses. Hulu's mouth, accounts mouth. The horses Hulu accounts. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Oh man. Yes. Um But I I enjoyed the movie. I yeah. enjoyed it immensely. I loved Kowalski. Like I know we Such were Such a great character. I know we were supposed to love him and that's why we love him. But and also I just Ezra Miller just kind of fucking rocks. Bravo. Like Oh yeah, I've loved him since. I mean, I, I, well, I, I can't say I really loved him. And we need to talk about Kevin, or we should talk about Kevin. I'm gonna mispronounce it because there's just too many words about Kevin, and we need to, <laughs> we need to have a firm heart to heart about Kevin. Is what it's called. But uh, no, perks of being. We need, we need to have, we need to have an intervention for Kevin. <laughs> we need, we need to. Uh, we need to tell Kevin being a vegan isn't cool anymore. Um, <laughs> sorry, we should. That's such a powerful movie. We shouldn't make we fun ne- of it. It's like sacrilege. We need to unfollow Kevin. <laughs> we need to unsubscribe to Kevin. <laughs> we need to stop enabling Kevin. Um, we need to talk to Kevin about his Instagram posts. <laughs> <laughs> we need to tell him that we're really concerned that he's quoting song lyrics right now. Um, no, but Ezra Miller in Perks of Being a Wallflower is so phenomenal. He and Emma Watson together are just a really amazing pair, uh, because they play step-siblings, but 
I he I've loved him since then. Like uh, despite the fact that he kind of eerily makes me think of like a young Jimmy Fallon, I I still really like Ezra Miller. Ah, oh, don't say that. I like Ezra Miller. Don't compare him to Fallon. Well, I mean, <laughs> when he was younger, look at look at videos of him when he was younger. He looked like basically a young Jimmy Fallon. Like I was surprised no one utilized that in some film. Hmm. I'm I'm, I'm joking. Jimmy Fallon's not going to be in a movie. Uh, let's hope let's keep him confined to that late night let's, slot let's hope taxi got that out of his system <laughs> let's quarantine him to nbc please let's leave him there um <laughs> tina fey can manage him <laughs> right no jimmy no bad step step away from the craft services table you've had enough Let's hope no one ever calls on him to give testimony because he'll just break on the witness stand. <laughs> no one will believe him. He'll just be like, I saw, I saw her in front of my father with a knife. <laughs> I'm sorry, was, guys. I'm sorry. Bill Hader's she, making a face. Bill Hader's making a face of me. I can't. I can't. <laughs> Where's Horatio? I know Horatio's here somewhere. Yo, yo, Rache. Let's talk. <laughs> Remember that time when we dressed in leather? Ladies and gentlemen, the roots! (laughs) And this court is a circus. Fuck you, Jimmy Fallon. Alright, so we had a point. Um, Ezra Miller, great, great actor. Great, great actor. Fantastic Beast was just fascinating to me because, like, of all the spinoffs, essentially, and I know that she just had so many thoughts about Newt Scamander, and that was her excuse, was like, I just know so much about this character, I have to do something with it. But basing a spinoff on one of their textbooks, essentially, at least from the outside, that's how it looks, is pretty ballsy. Mm-hmm. and kind of shows the strength of the brand. It really does. That can, you know, I mean, it's not a huge opening as far as a Harry Potter movie goes, but as far as the first entry in a new franchise, it's, uh, it's looking like it's got some legs, like it's going to do really well. But for her to have the balls to say... Nope, I'm going to write about an obscure-ish character that nobody really knows much about, and you're going to greenlight it for at least three movies. I'm going to write them, and I'm going to produce them, because I am Joanne Rowling, and you will bow down, Kevin Sujihara. And then she just stabs someone with a quill, because she fucking can. <laughs> and just walks out of the room. And is like, she just drops a cup of pins. <laughs> yeah. What? What are you going to do now? Um, I love Joanne Rowling, Rowling being a secret badass. Not even secret; she's a badass. Hey, I follow have to her on say, Twitter. It ain't no secret. Yeah, right. God, let's just retweet. Let's spend this whole week just retweeting something J.K. Rowling says every day, please. And then everyone will be Done. and everyone will be like, "What?" And you're like, "Oh, wait, I wasn't doing that. Sorry." Um, and then when everyone's like, "Why are they doing that?" All you know, forty people who would actually look at it are like. But they'd be like, why are they retweeting J.K. Rowling? And then we'd be like, bitch, new podcast. Well, in in reference to the 40 people thing, I am going to take a second to honk our own horns, uh, collective horns, and to thank our listeners. Where'd you get my horns? Because we are a... <laughs> you, you, you left them here. Fuck. I, I kept meaning to send them to you, but <laughs> I, I've, got you, I've got your horn here, and I'm going to do okay. it along with mine. Go ahead. Um we are now the fastest growing podcast in the history of Secret Weapon. We broke 100 after two episodes, uh, 100 subscribers, and we're uh, well past, uh, we're past 120 now, about to crush 150. 
we're just uh, we're growing rapidly, and I appreciate that. And I know that's a lot of subscribers from Tales from Two Cities and people who follow us on Tumblr, um, looking at Everything is an Island, our poetry Tumblr. Um, I don't care where you came from, but we're glad you're here. Yeah. Who knew? We're interesting-ish. I mean, in, in the realm of interesting. Right. But I think they mostly show up just to hear us talk about how awesome J.K. Rowling is. I think that is. I think this this is actually a lot of J.K. Rowling, like, listening to our podcast and, like, getting her husband to and her kids and stuff and being like, hey, mom's cool. See, I know you didn't know, but mom's, mom's doing all right. I know this is your favorite podcast, kid, so I want you to listen. Yeah, thanks, guys. <laughs> Slow clap. What are, what are J.K. Rowling's kids' names? I can't remember. But slow claps and rewrites, sponsored by J.K. Rowling's kids. <laughs> uh, oh, did you drop everything? Just, just most things. Just my phone. Oh, that's the most important thing. That's how I send you subtle messages telling you how much you suck to keep your ego down while we record. <laughs> oh, someone loves me. I'm glad. Oh, that... it's a dare. <laughs> womp womp. No, I think Fantastic Beasts is just an interesting, like, litmus test for the power of a writer and a power of a world that, granted, she's had seven books plus Pottermore plus the little spin-off books and the play now to really build that world. But the fact that it still resonates with people and, like, I don't know about you, but just hearing the music at yeah. the beginning of it, and then just going into the opening scene, I was like, I'm home. I'm back. I'm back where I belong. I'm... Thank you, David Yates. <laughs> I love you so. Yeah, that's how I feel often in movie theaters. I feel like people should just kind of quarantine me to a movie theater on the weekends, at least. If I could if I could live in Alamo Draft House for 48 hours out of the week, I would be a very happy boy. Yeah, it'd be so nice. Ah, life. So, Dan, I have a question about Harry Potter. Let's, let's, I'll, I'll, I have, like, two more things I want to talk about with Harry Potter, and then we can, you know, go to our regular program podcast. Podcast? Um. Podcast. So, Dan. How. So, Adair. Would you say, I was, I was starting. How would you say you would rate your, like, Harry Potter obsession? Prior to this movie. Like, read the books, seen the movies, read a few books, seen a few movies. Uh, read all of the books. Um, the first few my mother read aloud to us. The first three? Yeah. Um, to me and um, my little sister. And so I have, like, a magical soft spot in my heart. I remember seeing the first movie and turning to my mother and afterwards, which is one of the few movies I've been to where people stood up and gave it a standing ovation afterwards. But um, I turned to her and I said, you know, they got Hagrid's voice wrong because my concept of Hagrid's voice was my mother's voice. And my mother's student taught in Scotland and she, you know, gave him a, an appropriately thick brogue. And she told me, well, honey, it, that's my mistake. I was doing Hagrid as if he's from the far, as if he's from the far north, and clearly he's from further south in Scotland. Your mom's a badass. <laughs> yeah, my mom. She's just oh well, it was the wrong brogue. No, they they're right. <laughs> um, I love Harry Potter. <laughs> I 
read all the books, seen all the movies, um, read the Tales of Beetle the Bard. Um, mm. Haven't read the play yet, um, which is a dereliction of duty on my part. But I'm I'm getting to it. I, I will. You've, I will. You've had. You've had. You've so. had a half year. Yeah. You you can. But I I love Harry Potter. I'm not the biggest fan. I haven't reread any of the books. I do want to go back as an adult now and reread them. I think when I go on vacation in the spring sometime, I'm going to take the first book with me and reread that. Um, and then probably re-listen to season one of Into the Echo. Not Into the Echo. Wordstruck. Clark has too many podcasts for me to keep track of. Um, Says the guy with an equal and- number of podcasts. Shh. But yes, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan. I'm, a, I'm quite the fan. How about you? Where do I start? Big fan, little fan. I, I think I will, I will focus on two facts of my life. That, uh, yeah, that's what I'll give you. The two, these two main facts of my life, and I think you can draw a conclusion. There's a dog that is like coughing on me. I don't know what's going on. It's just. That's aspirating. Fact one. No. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the two facts, make of them what you will, are when I was 12, there was a festival of the book, which I don't know if you ever attended in Missoula, but it was a pretty big deal uh, where we had different speakers and panels and things like that. So I was on a panel when I was 12 regarding Harry Potter. And it was a bookseller, an author, a college student and 12-year-old me. And so I was on this panel talking about Harry Potter. And to no surprise of yours, I'm sure, I talked more than anyone else. And the second fact was when I was 15 going on 16, uh, I can't remember which of the books came out at that point. I want to say it was fifth. It was, I was 15, I think. Yeah, I was 15. So yeah, when I was 15, I, I was interviewed by the local news because of my knowledge about Harry Potter and the large quantities of random Harry Potter crap I had accumulated, which I no longer have, which I no longer have, but I... I was interviewed on the day that one of the Harry Potter books came out. I believe Order of the Phoenix, but yeah. Uh, So yeah, these are the two things I can tell you about my life that maybe don't make me seem like the biggest loon, but show that there was some a proper amount of lunacy involved in my childhood with Harry Potter. You sound like you could have written for the Scribbler, Scribner, Scrib, Scribber, Scrib, Scrib. What's the crazy newspaper? Yeah, Scribbler. Quibbler. Yeah. Quibbler. I was like, what are you saying? Quibbler. 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 I was like, Scribbler? Scribbler? What what did we say? Quibbler. Yeah, you mean the Quibbler. I, I believe I do. I would love to work for Xeno, Xenophilius Lovegood. Um, I actually, if I could connect to one, I should have done this for my three fictional characters, but if I could connect to like one character, it's Luna Lovegood. Faux show. She's the shit. She's pretty awesome. Who would you say you would be from Harry Potter? Mm. That is a challenge. Probably Lupin. 
Uh, Lupin's the bomb. He's one of the reasons why the third book is my favorite book. Ugh, I really hope if awesome. I really hope if Ford Struck does Prisoner of Azkaban, they'll ask me to come on because I would really like to talk to them about it. Well, <clears throat> put it out there. All <clears throat> we can do now is hope. <clears throat> <laughs> You're coughing a lot. You all right? <laughs> Still sick, man. Okay, so my other thing, my other <laughs> thing regarding Harry Potter. So now that you know that I'm a freak, I really wanted a Niffler during in the fourth book when they talk about oh. the Nifflers because and honestly I have often thought a Niffler is kind of like a pug because my pugs make a very similar noise and are always trying to find weird things and like burrowing into the ground trying to find things that normally don't exist because they're also kind of mentally handicapped but I always thought it and let's be honest <laughs> they're, they're probably genetically handicapped yeah, they're, because they're pugs yeah, yeah and they're not doing great by being owned by me they're they're not they're not doing great by having me be their owner there we go um three strikes so anyway i always loved the idea of the niffler though i thought that was such a great scene and i it was one of my favorites from that from goblet of fire and so the fact that there was so much focus on a niffler was awesome to me and the fact that they look kind of like a platypus also like double awesome to me and also the the creature that they had that was invisible, when it wasn't invisible, looked like a sloth, and I was so stoked about that. I have not calm down, Kristen Bell. No, yeah, I mean, I my reaction to sloths are pretty ridiculous. The fact that I have two sloths in my bedroom, not real, unfortunately, but there are two sloths that chill in my bedroom and a tea infuser that chills in my kitchen. Shows that I have a problem. So would you say, would you say Rowling maybe, uh, uh, Rowling maybe wrote this uh, this movie specifically for you? Because it sounds like she was hitting some key areas of interest. I think she was. I think. I mean, there was one one choice that was made, but I don't know if it was really her choice. And that's my only, it's my only point of dissatisfaction in this movie. So, is it a spoiler? Yeah, can't say. Okay. Skip ahead 30 seconds, everyone. What was your bone of contention? I When I saw that profile and was like, it's fucking Johnny Depp. Yep. And, uh, and it was funny, I looked to Maya and I was like, no, they didn't have Johnny Depp in this. And she was like, no, they wouldn't. And then she was like, oh, no. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, okay. In that moment, it felt like, uh, it felt like Rowling turned... Why do I always say that? Rolling turned towards Rolling. towards all of us and just said, "Crucio." <laughs> yep. It's like, no, no, don't do it, don't do it. I imagine, He's poisoned. He's poisoned. I imagine when J.K. Rowling did that, that she also had like a, only one eye. I just I see her doing like <laughs> having a patch or either or like a squinty eye, as some people have when they have only have one eye. That's, that's my <laughs> that's my story. So the, okay, so those who realized when we meant when we said 30 seconds, we meant 1 minute. Oh, welcome back. Glad you didn't listen to that and get all those spoilers. Man, this is such <laughs> yep. a movie review episode. I think we can transition away from that seamlessly. Okay, let's see. Let's see. Let's see if you can do it. I believe in you. I don't believe in myself right now. <sighs> Music. <sighs> <laughs> you like that you like that transition? Music! <laughs> <laughs> da, 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 do. 
<laughs> Play me out, Sam. <laughs> so obviously there's only been a week between our last podcast and this podcast, but I won't have time next week, so we're recording now, damn it. So let's talk about Don't don't things. let them peek behind the curtain. Don't let them know. <laughs> oh shit. Thanksgiving didn't just happen. Uh, no, we're, we're fully... Uh, uh, um, uh, uh, damn it, it's done. <laughs> Since when did you develop a stutter? I've actually had one my entire life. Hmm. I just suppress it with alcohol and sheer force of Oh, I just thought you were an alcoholic. Noted. Wah. 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 <laughs> so, we have been talking off air about um, the nature of pain in art. Yes. And what that... What that's like in writing specifically, um, lyrics, poetry, prose, film, Jimmy Fallon in a sketch. What pain is really <laughs> like to behold in art? Um, and what that does for us as viewers or writers or readers um, when you're either creating it, what sort of opportunities that avails to you for your own personal pain, and what sort of catharsis you can gain from experiencing someone else's pain through their art. That sounded so much better coming from you than from me. Like how we got all serious, guys? This is a writing show, in case you forgot. A whirlwind of emotions. It's great. (laughs) Uh, So I think we all could probably say, and this kind of goes into Into the Echo, and maybe we should talk about, like, songs about death and songs about hurt and loss at some point. And make it a real depressing show. It'd be great to collaborate with them about that. But we all have those songs we listen to when we're sad. And I was talking to Dan about this yesterday. That I really feel like often if you just lay out the lyrics, it's it's poetry. Like that's what it is in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason why a lot of poets have written songs. And why a lot of songwriters are also poets. It's this beautiful thing to find those songs that I think we all have those. And from talking to you, I, I mean, I know we both do, but those songs that hit you and make you feel maybe not as alone, especially in the pain. And I think as writers or just as general creative people, we want to take those strong emotions and make it into something constructive because that's who we feel we are. And... So having music is is such a beautiful way to process that as well. It's interesting how you said uh, to not feel alone. Because I think that's a bit... Even if it's just communing with the words on the page, if you're the writer, um, or just... You, there's a really unique connection that we feel when we talk about pain, and it resonates with somebody else. Like, more so than when somebody else gets a joke or a reference or appreciates the same thing as us. When you read something or hear something or see something that depicts pain and you know it, Mm -hmm. you know that pain, it it resonates with you, it means something, and you can just feel viscerally, like, for a moment, you're on the same page with someone else. Someone you may be separated by years and a medium by... um, but there's a really powerful connection there. And I think people write about pain for that same reason. Like, they're never, you know, you may be approached by somebody if you're a writer or a lyricist or whatever, and 
they can say, oh, you, you wrote this thing that really meant a lot to me and I really get what you were talking about. But just the act of putting it down on paper, you kind of form a relationship with the words and the words and you are talking back and forth about the pain. Yeah. That I think it's, it's very therapeutic. Um, and at the same time, it's 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 both it's both like succumbing to your pain and just and like trying to justify it to yourself or just acknowledging it but it's also a way of getting past it and getting through it i totally agree and i hate being the asshole that comes into a conversation with a quote but there's a please do. <laughs> but there's a quote from a novel by john green and they say there's that's the thing about pain it demands to be felt and so the fault in our stars yeah, great book. yes and I, I didn't say that initially because the fact is like people relate it to this film and it's actually one of the most beautiful books i've ever read and i read it as my pseudo father figure was dying so it was definitely that was a a a beautiful chance to see what little eternities there can be my copy of that book is stained with both my own tears and the mascara tears of my little sister who came into my room <laughs> bawling, holding the book, saying, I'm never borrowing anything from you again. <laughs> oh, I love that. But, I mean, no. Yeah, it's... it's, it's yeah. Uh, for people who are not, see- are not seeing past, like, oh, it's a YA kind of novel or it's a a teen movie. I you're missing out because there's a lot of there's a lot of pain in that book and it's one of those books that really can help you through things. And that's I think that's a good example of like you read certain books maybe not because they make you happy or watch certain movies maybe not because they bring you joy but it's a beautiful thing to feel heard in the world especially when you go through pain whether it's through music or movies or books or through a conversation. But sometimes the shitty thing about it is you can be around a lot of people and they can't say the right thing. And so you seek out the answer you need. And, yep, I know. I I caught you off guard there, Dan. No, it's not only finding an answer, but sometimes even just feeling pain. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, just finding a, a media, uh, a representation, something that just allows you to cry. Yeah. That just gives you, that gives you a pass for, for a myriad of reasons. Like, if I am really verklempt, if I'm really worked up about something, if I'm really upset or worried, I don't often just talk out the issue mm-hmm. right away. I need some sort of invitation, some sort of opening. And this doesn't necessarily... Uh, pertain to the songs that I shared with you but like and I've written about this and I've talked about this on our blog and with you before but Feed the Birds from Mary Poppins that song gives me a free pass to cry Mm -hmm. both because of the place it holds in my life personally because it's a song that my mother sang to me when I was a little baby Um, but because of just the the, the feelings that that always brings up in me it's just an instant access point yeah to just to be okay to just open up the well and just just pour out the tears. 
that was uh, that final scene from Homeward Bound. That is uh, that last scene from Homeward Bound. It's partially where I was in my life as a child, but that I mean, oh damn! And I mean, there are other songs and scenes as well, but. Well, and even without lyrics or dialogue, like just the fact that the soundtrack goes completely quiet and then they just bring back the main theme as Shadow comes over the hill very quietly at first and then ramp it up as he's running towards Peter. Just, I mean, I can be anywhere and if I just hear... I'll go... And I immediately start hearing the voiceover from Shadow go, Peter! I was so worried. I was so worried about you. That's the part that is so true to any dog owner, anyone who's ever had that relationship, that he was so worried about Peter. Oh, God, yeah. Every time. Um... One of my friends posted just that scene on Facebook the other day, and it just said, in case you needed to cry. <laughs> Got it. People are so mean um, doing that. Um, also, I gotta... I, this is just my going and seeing a lot of movies in a row, but... Mm-hmm. Um, did anyone else make a connection when Mads Mikkelsen the bad guy in Doctor Strange stole something in the beginning scene of Doctor Strange and then he supposedly builds the Death Star in Rogue One. Can we just say, like, maybe he stole the Death Star plans? That was a joke I made. Well, we'll have to wait and see. That was a jo- we'll have to wait and see, I guess. So that was a joke I made to my niece a few days well a week ago when we saw Doctor Strange and then I reiterated it to her today when we saw Fantastic Beasts because there was a Rogue One trailer and I was like remember that joke I told you that you didn't think was funny here's more info about it gain a better knowledge of Disney synergy that's when I talked to my nephew 14 year old you know he got really excited when he found out one certain books that I read Two, that I like superhero movies. And three, that I have podcasts. I'm like, but fun fact, you don't get to listen to those. Yeah. I'd say 16 is probably appropriate for this podcast. 16. Yeah. Or whatever the age range for the movie Starstruck is. 8 to 10, I think. Yeah. No. I mean, I haven't said fuck once this whole time. Hey, you ruined it. So let's talk about pain. Let's. You know, I'm talking to you, so I think that's a good thing to talk about. Um, it is a painful experience. To talk to you? Yeah. No, most deaf. Mm-hmm. So I had, I think, probably one of the best talks I've ever had with you on Monday. Or no, Tuesday. Not going to mix up days. But that was sort of my realization of how much you understand my my process of things. But I could say, like, this last week has definitely changed how I'm writing currently because I'm trying to still write. And I think it's definitely changing how I'm interacting with people, which is hard as well. Um, But I think it did really arise an interesting idea of you understand certain aspects of 
why I am feeling a great deal of pain right now. And that's not something anyone else is really going to get a whole lot of insight into because I don't have a blog anymore, so that's just not something I'm going to talk about. But I think there was something really beautiful about talking to you and hearing what you have to say, having been my collaborator and seeing how I handle most things in my life because you've been in my life for really huge parts of my life. And I think you gave me some really beautiful thoughts on all of this, but you also inspired me to, like, write through some things. Partially you gave me ideas, and I just stole them straight up. But it's... That's what being a writer is, right? Just stealing things when people pity you. Um, (laughs) But it did remind me, like, that we actually have something, something we're not really actively creating but that is gradually unfolding that I'm I I think there's something beautiful about this one idea we've talked about for almost a year where I think there's real potential to discuss what you know and I think something that we know that doesn't seem to be a well represented fact is the idea of having a close collaborative creative and friendship relationship with someone who is of the opposite sex and how that there is a unique insight to that and also that it can really help in those moments those pivotal moments because it's not catty it's not argumentative it's not trying to fix something necessarily which are different roles that we have in other people's lives but not each other's but I think there's something really that excited me about that because I felt like we actually have like a real story at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the one, like there's something to be said. I think you really are at least in the mindset of a storyteller when bad things happen to you. And one of your main thoughts is, well, this will make a great story. Like, to have your life and your pain influence your work that much, to just say, this is terrible. This does suck. Someday I'm going to get it down on paper. Like, to be in that place where something tragic and shitty and awful has purpose to you as an artist. It has a place in your life, and it's an unavoidable consequence of living. You get hurt. No one gets out alive. It, it all sucks at times. But some people, everyone has their therapy and their way of dealing with things. But as a writer, as a storyteller, there is a visceral, tactile, and immediate application for your pain. Which I think can be a very powerful therapeutic tool. Along with, you know, a myriad of solutions and supports. But it's a really interesting byproduct of following this passion and this discipline where you get to take all the shit that's happened to you and make it work for you like it's to me it's like turning a scar into a tattoo you know like making art out of pain is a really powerful transformative and 
liberating process that gives you freedom from it. It's like I have so much ownership over this bad thing that happened to me that I'm making it work for me. It doesn't control me. I control it. I use it in the story. This is my poetic line. This is my song. This is my painting. This is my photograph. This is my comic book. This is whatever you make out of it. It becomes fuel for a fire instead of a hole to get trapped in. And I think that's, isn't that what we're always trying to do when, when we get caught in this overwhelming frustration or sadness in the world or in our own lives or in the lives of people we care about? We're trying to make sense of it in whatever way we can and we're trying to make something good come out of it. And sometimes that doesn't happen. But I think in the last few years, particularly, we have gotten to a place where we allow ourselves to feel those things, which for a long time, I don't think either of us was very good at absorbing the feelings we were having and being open about the fact that we were having those feelings. And so it is something really kind of beautiful about the fact that we, I mean, are growing as authors or as writers, and we're growing as writers and we're growing as people. And that's, there's something really great about that. And I have to like look at it that way and think about how I, in utilizing the limited energy I have right now onto something that will maybe not make things make sense to me, but will at least, they will at least allow me to make sense of some idea of what I'm feeling. I think you can take your pain and either deal with the party that's caused it and try to reconcile that way, but it takes two to tango. That becomes a difficult process and a very long process. And if you're entirely dependent on someone else, and especially the interested party or the damaging party, if you're dependent on them for closure and to feel better, you could be waiting a very long time, or it could get worse, or like, you know... Uh, Childhood shit that I had with somebody mm -hmm. um, is great now because we talked about it and we're good. But that's not always the case. And sometimes when you're frustrated and when you're trying to work through those things, if you try to go to the party, it just ends up making things worse and you don't get the response you want. And like a good example, you sent me a song that um, you think about when you're sad or that uh, in, that speaks to pain that you know. Um, I don't want to be funny anymore. Oh, God, yeah. Um, and there's a great line, almost right off the bat, where she says, I hurt my friends saying things I don't mean out loud. Isn't that... I mean, if that isn't... It's so fucking <laughs> yeah. poignant. That's gospel, right? Like, that is... We have all done that. We have all taken our internal bullshit and let that make venom come out of our mouths, you know? Yeah. No, I actually, that being said, I really do want us to talk about, we both sort of shared our sads. We both, there were, we had two sad songs, two happy songs, like the songs when we're really, you know, on a roll or that kind of frame of mind we want to have and the songs that make us feel heard or not alone. And I really want to actually talk about your, like both of ours, but like yours, because... One of them you chose was from the last five years. And I remember I hadn't really gone to plays for a little while before that. And 
I remembered that, like movies, plays really can evoke these strong feelings. And I remember crying during that song. Um, part of it because I was going through exactly what the song was about. But just hearing that, even reading the title and then looking at the lyrics of that song, the reminder of that, it's so palpable, even if it's not a song that you've heard in a long time. Yeah. I mean, it's, it really, doing that show again this summer, um, I knew when we were talking about songs for pain, I was either going to say the finale of that show, I Could Never, La- uh, I Could Never Rescue You, slash Goodbye Until Tomorrow, or um, Nobody Needs to Know, mm-hmm. as really pain-inducing songs. But, could, but um, I Could Never Rescue You. I mean, even the little... I don't want to call them asides, but later in the song as it's swelled and she's saying such lovely, incredible, hopeful things and he's just saying worse and worse, sadder things when he says, you never noticed how the winds had changed. That speaks to just this volume of pain and difficulty of sometimes you are just not on the same page with someone. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you can just not be together. And sometimes things are just that awful. And in any relationship of any kind, that just holds so much truth to me. Is like relationships change and evolve over time. And whether that's a sibling or a parent or a friend or a lover, sometimes somebody will change and the other person doesn't, or they change in a different way. And it is really difficult to reconcile that. Mm-hmm. And the whole song just, I could never rescue you. That just the title alone speaks to just this really, really tragic feeling of like there could have been something, something could have been done, and it's just not going to happen. It's just not there. Yeah. No. But also you, the other song you chose makes me think of the times you have been pretty defeated, I guess, is kind of the word about Mm -hmm. your choice to move to the East Coast. And I don't feel like it's that way anymore, but I felt like there was maybe this time last year, if not a little bit earlier, but Mm -hmm. I felt like there was definitely this sense of you felt like you weren't fitting, like no matter how much energy you had. You, this wasn't going to be a home. This wasn't going to be where you started your life in any kind of healthy way. Yeah, I mean, that's that's uh, that's why I picked the, the second of my sad songs, that's for sure. Um, yeah, there's a real, I don't know, New York's Not My Home by Jim Croce. Like, it's, I have cried on the subway listening to that, straight up. I've been the guy crying on the subway. <laughs> Well, I think also it's um, such a hard city sometimes to live in coming from some a different place that there is that. I mean, it's nice to know you're not alone in that. Yeah, I think, again, that shared experience of pain and hurt. But, like, unless you come from New York originally, London, or maybe Hong Kong, for most people it's a pretty huge adjustment. Yeah. Um, just the life and the culture and how different the culture is just block by block um, and being stacked on top of each other 
you know, the population density and all that, but it's, everyone feels defeated here at some point or another, and having that in such a clear, concise, lyrical representation is comforting, because it's so poignant, and it so encapsulates that feeling. So it's such a beautiful thing that you can find comfort in discomfort. Yeah. And I'm, I know that like on a day to day basis, like life can change so much and there can be moments of feeling homesick for a small town. And there can be moments where you're like, I can't imagine ever not living in this big city. And so it's wonderful when we have those moments of quiet that maybe make us feel a little uncomfortable that you can kind of have that reference to feeling like you're not alone makes the city seem a little bit smaller yeah yeah Yeah, i mean just even and i think this speaks to a lot of people's experience but just when jim croce says i lived there about a year and i never once felt at home um and you know the statistics of people moving away once you hit eight years you're very unlikely to move away from new york Mm mm-hmm um, but most people, the majority of people leave after a year or less because it is so, so hard. Yeah, it spits, it chews you up and spits you out. Mm-hmm. I... Sometimes it feels like you're just stuck in between the teeth, like you didn't even get spit out. You're like, digest me or not, just one. Um, yeah. no, I, I definitely think, though, Seattle was a big change. It's not the same as New York there's it's much easier to get comfortable here I think it's much more you have to have a strong will to survive in New York well it's one of those things like comfort is the enemy of change Mm -hmm. and so in that way it's a real blessing because it is so uncomfortable here I've had to change a lot um I've had to adapt and figure out ways to make things work and that for that I am eternally grateful um Scott Snyder, who's a very good comic book writer, um, was talking about Batman and about Gotham City. And he said that the city is designed to break you. It's designed to beat you up and wear you down and put you through heat and pressure until you are distilled down to your purest core. Until you've been worked and worked and worked and all the impurities are gone from you. And what comes out of that is who you really are. It breaks you down to your core, to your essence, to a pure element. And if you can survive that, if you will let it, the city will make you better than you were before. Because it strips away all your bullshit. I love that. And you find out yeah, it's, yeah, that's another quote that I, I really like. No, I love it. Um, actually, on that discussion, though, I do have a recommendation. Let's count it as my recommendation of the podcast. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. You really should read City on Fire. Yeah? Yeah, I, it's by Garth Risk Hallberg. I read it last winter. It's It's a lofty piece of work. It's like 900 pages, but... It, I mean, 
when I read it, I just wanted to be in New York. I I felt like wow. that's where I should be. Um, though I've never really had that urge prior. Like I love New York, but it's not like a place I want to live. But it is that idea of it makes you a more extreme version of who you are. Because you have to be. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Anyway, let's let's talk some happy things for you. Um, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, yeah. you actually, so you chose two songs that made you happy. And the songs that you feel bring you happiness. And it's funny because one of those songs actually makes me sad. Um, because my dad is a really big Bob Dylan fan. So Bob Dylan in general is a little bit tainted for me, which kind of sucks, but it is what it is. But Paths of Victory, I mean, if you're going to choose a kind of happier song, definitely. And I wholeheartedly agree with I Can Go the Distance from Hercules because if there ever was a song to make you feel like you were strong, that's it. Wow, that kind of rhymed. Woo. Yeah. It's... And those are... I mean, I've loved every song on the Hercules soundtrack since I saw it in theaters. Uh, love that movie, love it to death. And that song really inspired me and kept me focused. And I'm happiest when I am striving and working towards something. And that, you know... I will beat the odds, you know. I can go the distance. I'll be there someday. If I can be strong. Like, these sorts of sentiments are things that I've had to tell myself for years. But now that I'm here, Paths of Victory is a little more... They're both such forward momentum songs and things will get better and you're getting there. It's not like... Like, a real happy, happy song is when I'm in a good mood, I go down the street singing Sunny Side of the Street. Oh, me That's too. Kind of We're so friends. <laughs> like when I'm just happy, that's what I reach for. But when I'm looking for happiness, when I'm reminding myself of who I am and what matters to me, like I walked down to the valley, I turned my head up high, I see that silver lining that was hanging in the sky. Trails of troubles, roads of battles, paths of victory, we shall walk. And even the, even in the chorus, I love this. He lays out a three-act structure. Trails of troubles, roads of battles, paths of victory. That is that is the dramatic arc of a play encapsulated in a tiny little stanza. That's why he and gets I, a... I love that kind of... That's why he gets all the awards. Yeah. He's, he's hella talented. I was going to say, um, I think he should have gotten the Nobel Prize for poetry. Yeah. <laughs> Not for literature. Yeah, maybe... I think that would have been much more apt. I mean, but, uh, he was the poet laureate of his generation. Yeah, I'd say the greatest popular music lyricist of the 20th century. Did I ever tell you that, that joke involving... It's not really a joke, it's my life, but involving going to see Bob Dylan with my dad? No. So, I've seen Bob Dylan more than I've seen most artists, and I get, like, that's the most white thing to complain about. But at a certain point, <laughs> it's just he's talking. So he's fine yep. for a point, but also no. So I think it was the third time I saw him. 
with my dad. It was at the Osprey Stadium outside, or like in on the outskirts of like downtown Missoula, which I'm sure you know. But you know the five Missoulians that are listening to this podcast, yeah, you guys know that that stadium. That's where Bob Dylan was playing. Um, so they introduced him as the poet laureate of his generation, and I looked at my dad and I said, Dad. I want to be the poet laureate of my generation. And he said, it's good to have a dream. Woof. Speaking of pain. <laughs> Woo. My father. Source of so many wow. ills. Um, right, though? But, hey, we just said. Seg- well, that's a good transition yeah, to go segue. into to your painful songs. <laughs> that was a pretty sleek segue we made. So. <laughs> right? I'm yeah. so proud of you. I know. You taught me so well. <laughs> right? Well, I so, already I already kind of touched on Yeah. Um I don't want to I don't want to be funny anymore. Yeah, so that um, song actually I I I'll, I'll I think that one's a really It suits me very well. I I am a person that when I am unhappy, I am not really good. I, I am a I am a happy and dependable person to a lot of people and I think when I am unhappy it scares people because there's just a certain point where I'm like I'm done like I I I try very hard but right now I'm I'm hurting and so this song it does really get to a lot of feelings that I have when I am sad you made some really good points we say things often that are cutting that we don't necessarily mean, or if we mean them, we don't want to address them in that way. Like, it's just, you know, there's hurt. There's a lot of hurt, and it exacerbates other hurts you have. And so that is definitely a feeling for me. And also, there's just this idea that even when you're not feeling right, you're like you're on, like you're not being that mm-hmm. person, like you still are expected to be on. And so people yeah. kind of think like even though you're in pain, it's like, oh, but she's going to get out of it. Like she, totally. And there's this whole idea of her settling in every line where she says, I, I don't want to be funny anymore. I've got a too short skirt. Maybe I can be the cute one. Is there room in the band? I don't need to be the front man. If not, I'm the biggest fan. And so it's this idea of like, I just need to find a place. I just can't be this person anymore. And moving out of, moving out of your sort of pigeonholed role that we all kind of sort of find ourselves in. Oh yeah, I think is a really powerful thing that we all want, especially when we're hurting. When it's like, don't make me tell a joke. Don't ask me to do an imitation. Don't, don't tell me, oh, you should sing that song or like, don't make me be whatever it is I've been to you because right now I need to be something different for me. And it hurts when you are not a person that necessarily expresses emotion effusively that people don't know. And Mm -hmm. I definitely, I think one of the first lines is I don't want to feel like the odd man out and there is a feeling of loneliness when you are kind of refuting the idea of who you are or who you are to other people. And so that was all very accurate. Um, I mean, that's life. And then the other song that I definitely has affected me and that I've connected to is Love, Love, Love from 
uh, of monsters and men because mm-hmm. there's just i mean a lot of it is really difficult but there's a verse the just the verse where they say love you're so distracting am i overacting for feeling this way and ever since i met you i can't keep uh, my attention and you are to blame but this idea of just in general with relationships whether romantic or familial there is sort of an obsession with wondering what another person is thinking and i think that particular song just hits me because i get really self-deprecating in sadness and that is a hard thing and that song is one of the most self-deprecating self-blaming songs you'll find in recent catalogs and i think that just sort of it it kind of can exacerbate your feeling but there's no a lot of it is about this losing things and losing yourself but then feeling like you're going to be the one to blame that you can't do enough and I think isn't that what we all feel with jobs with relationships with work like that we're doing creatively like it's all us to blame it's our neck on the line and I think it's easy to just say like it's all my fault like my sadness is my own fault yeah I mean those what is it? Those those bright blue eyes can only meet mine across a room filled with people that are less important than you. <laughs> Man, I mean that that notion of being, of seeing something that matters, and having it feel totally adrift and totally impossible to connect to. Yeah, that's that's shitty. Recognizing the real thing and it not being attainable is just that's that's torturous. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's just all very hard. I was recently realizing I was having a lot of trouble sleeping and eating, and the song came to mind because in the chorus there's a whole discussion about uh, a feeling so extreme, losing your appetite to eat, a bar- uh, and I barely get to sleep because you're even in my dreams. But like that idea of something being so encompassing, like a feeling or a person, but just that idea of not being able to function like you do and it is so encompassing in your life it sucks yep but i mean it's one of those songs that no matter how sad i am i feel like well that is something that someone else has felt because you can't speak of these things if you don't it's just there's a lot of like yeah. even if the person who wrote these songs didn't feel that pain in that moment they had to have felt it at one point because this it's just too spot on damn same the same goes with the happy songs yeah, though, too knowing that your 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 joy is real like my joy my joy could be real i love that um no i'd love to to think about that i was thinking about a do you ever have that song where you think might play when you're walking down the street? Uh, you mean your personal soundtrack? Well, yes. Yeah, so I don't necessarily think it's one song, but the song that consistently plays, because, and I've talked to you about this through our blog, but the Talking Heads, like they write a lot of soundtracks to my life, but And She Was is such that song. Like, I'm sure... That and... Well, I told you... the. The uh, DuckTales soundtrack was playing happily in my head, but when it wasn't, it was And She Was by The Talking Heads. But uh, if you just play those two on repeat, you feel okay. <laughs> but yeah. I, 
I loved the song when I was younger, and I always loved the idea of someone seeing that I was, yeah, I was a weird kid, like, I was a super weird kid, but I always wanted someone to see that my weirdness was was special to me, and I like this song from, for that, and I just like the, the world was moving, and she was right there with it, the world was moving, she was floating above it, and she was. Well, and the interesting thing about this one, in, in my mind, is that it's so based on being seen, versus... What we've talked about before is permission to feel or something resonating, but just there's some, there is a joy in being seen and being seen authentically, and to be to be seen and admired like this, and and now she's starting to rise. Take a minute to concentrate. She opens up her eyes, like it's just you know maybe narrating her day or just describing how she moves through the world. But there, the fact that someone is taking note of you getting up in the morning, yeah, is that's beautiful. And it it does that. I mean, feeling seen is such a huge part of that. The idea of not even feeling seen, but feeling seen and accepted by someone in the yeah. world. Because I think that is something to to envy in the world. And my other song is less less along those lines, but it's more just. It's actually, I feel, perfectly encapsulates how I feel when I am in a good place in my life because it's, it's, I mean, it's accurate in a lot of ways. I think it's a really good lesson to learn by. And it's Mr. Mello's song, Spirits. And the whole idea of the song is that you kind of are running from things changing, but still you accept that, like, you just want to live a really good now that that might not be the case other times but that you you just want to be who you are in a lot of it uh i think uh i'll just read part of it because i think it's accurate i've been looking at the stars tonight and i think oh how i miss that bright sun i'll be a dreamer till i day i die uh, the day i die but they say, oh, how good to die young, but we're all strange and maybe we don't want to change. And there's a beautiful part where it just says, you know, I want to be me till the day I die. Like I just, I, yes, things are chaotic and scary and weird, but I want to be who I am, even if that's weird. Yeah. I think the, you know, the notion where he talks about later not wanting to live forever not you know i don't want a never-ending life i just want to be alive while i'm here that i mean perfect put that that's you want to go for the bumper sticker line for the t-shirt line like yeah that's yeah that's that's a slogan that can instantly provoke something and put you in the moment and make you okay with being here and not dwelling on your melancholy and whatever else you're dealing with. No, and I definitely think that, I mean, like, let's be honest, that is the the tagline kind of verse where you, I mean, that's how you feel heard and that's how you feel like that's how you want to live. And mm-hmm. it's beautiful. It's a beautiful sentiment. And sometimes we don't think about it. And it's a good reminder. And... Absolutely. I don't know. It's, it's, I think it's good to focus on making life good in the present. 
Like you, yeah. you can't rewrite your past, but you can change things at this point to rewrite where you end up. You can be all you can be all right right now. Exactly. You're allowed. So yeah. You're allowed. So, yeah. So yeah, those are my my songs. Um, I'm glad I'm glad we talked about those. I had a lot of plans for this week that did not happen. Same here. And I originally planned to read a poem I had written back in July. That was on our mm-hmm. blog. That very properly suited how I was feeling at the time, which was a lot of pain. But the pain didn't feel the same. And I think in that instance, you want to try and salvage some understanding out for what you're feeling. I like that I keep hearing your wife sort of singing in the background. She's lovely, in yep. case you're wondering. I'm a fan. I'm glad you're married to her. I um, know. So I wrote a piece based off of a conversation you and I had, and I'm sure you probably recognized that I had done that. But you said something to me on Tuesday regarding losing a limb. And that pretty accurately represents what I'm feeling still. And so phantom limb syndrome was kind of what I felt I was experiencing, which this is not to make it's light a great of title. Well, it's not to make light of people who actually have phantom limb syndrome, but that's kind of what it feels right now. And I don't know when that I don't know when that dissipates. And so it felt like a really appropriate piece. So yeah, I'm going to read to you now. Notice how I can't say in a normal voice I'm going to (laughs) read. Because I'm a weirdo. Alright. The weight of this pain forcing my teeth as they compressed and scratched the reddened groove into my lip. Enamel collided with skin, creating discomfort, instructing me on how to feel now that a piece of me is missing. The limb has been severed. There is a phantom lurking in my bones, cracking my ribs, deliberately compressing against my sternum. Pressure deflating once healthy, veined lungs as I remembered how to breathe. This is how you can lose yourself. Once handicapped, empty rooms feel daunting and quiet moments remind you of the lost appendage. I try to remember if my body rejected the limb or if my body was not enough to support this extremity. Self-medicate with conversations over whiskey until the world tires of the loss. As the heart endures physical therapy, the rationale of the tragedy seems useless. I am expected to live in a broken body with pain that stains me with constant reminders. My toes, my fingers, my arms, my legs they are foreign matter they no longer matter and as i told you before you're not allowed to change that ending because it's brilliant (laughs) three lines or two lines um the last three i won't fuck with them um (laughs) i think you said like i'll cut you but you do this 
Probably. Um, apropos, given the piece. Um, but no, in the in the context of loss, I think it's it's an interesting phenomenon, and to make it to that you hit on the that sentiment and just followed it down the rabbit hole of real loss, whether it is a part of your body or a friend or a relationship or you know a pet or whatever whatever a piece of yourself whatever you lose it's gone forever you know things change and things heal and things get better and you adapt but that part just being so gone so separate um i love i try to remember if my body rejected the limb or if my body was not enough to support this extremity that i mean the bewilderment in the loss, in the fallout, in the shattering of what was leaves us in this sort of stupefied state of, was it me? Was it me? Was it them? Why didn't this... What happened? What am I missing? I'm missing something, and I don't know where to place fault. And to just accept that and not draw a conclusion... But just to express that feeling and just own it, I think is a powerful statement. Yeah. And I think part of it goes from there are experiences with limbs where obviously they have to be amputated due to issues. But have you read any of those case studies with people who come in and their arm isn't their arm or things like that where... They they have mm-hmm. to cut off a piece of them because they can't recognize it, and yeah. I, that sounded so devastating to me that you can't recognize your own arm. There was part of that that really hit me. This idea of something that belongs to you doesn't belong to you, or the idea of something that does belong to you gets taken from you, and it isn't black and white in that way but it's hard to remember as things as pain blurs like why something's gone why is it gone no I think the notion of a phantom limb is such a fascinating and beautiful illusion for poetry Um, it's the sort of it's a visceral fear We've all had that moment where you almost get your hand stuck in the door or your foot gets caught or you're, you are stuck. And that thought, what if, the, what, what if this just goes? What if it's just gone? But to actually live in the experience of perpetual loss like that, I mean, it's... I've been watching Broadchurch and it makes me think of losing a child. You know? There is a piece of you that is now gone from this world. The same with losing a parent. Um, That's a part of you that's gone forever. And there is no earthly way to right yourself again. Like eventually, if all goes according to plan, we will all be orphans. And that is... That's just too painful to think about. Yeah. 
It's hard. Both my parents have had some serious health stuff the last few years, and for the first time in my life I've had to think about that. I'm like, one day I'm going to be an orphan. That's weird. I feel that often. It's why you are lucky in that you have a really good partner in that you have someone to to talk to about those things. It's it, I think it's why building our tribe is so important too. It sustains us through the loss because as important as any partnership is, creative, romantic, business, whatever, we build more and more of them because no one relationship can bear the strain of a loss of another. When somebody dies, there's no one person that's going to help you through that. When something ends, it's it's not possible to sustain the grief and loss in a one-to-one ratio like that. When a piece of you is cut out, you can't just stuff the hole full with another person. There are bits of twine and string and needles and tape and staples all throughout your friends and family and relatives and all of them will have to come together to perform the surgery of putting you back together it's true but no one person is ever going to be able to fix that hole yeah it's just sad when people choose to not allow that to be an option Rejecting the surgery. Which some people need to do, but... There's a lot of good out in the world. And I recognize that. But there's a lot of pain. And so, I feel like life is a large amount of filling... Filling that weight to be equal parts. So that nothing feels immeasurable. Yeah. So depressing. Uh, Visceral and real. Yeah, I think a lot of work will come out of this, and I know that, but uh, it's just a lot. It's a lot to feel. It sucks to feel so intensely at times, and hopefully some good comes from it. We can only hope that our pain serves as contrast to make our joys that much better. You should be a poet. (laughs) Working on it. (laughs) Spot.